Um, we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 9. Matthew 9 uh, is where we've been the last little bit, and we're continuing this series. I'm, I'm a big fan of how this series is, is kind of unfolding. Full disclosure, uh, it, 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 though it was planned a while ago, it's kind of been surprising to me, kind of the different direction that, that it's taking, but I'm here for the ride if, if you'll let me just sometimes not quite know which direction it's going to go. And so what, what we've begun doing is looking at this idea that uh, when when we finished with John a few weeks ago that Jesus flipped those tables and we just sort of talked about it in this big global sense of, you know, when he flipped those tables, what was he mad about? He's not, he's not like a, he doesn't hate goats and he's not against money or making money. What he was mad about, what Jesus was flipping out of the temple was these obstacles that were making it hard for people to see who the father really was. They were actually getting in the way of people seeing what God was like, what he was really like. And so he flips those tables. And so we've begun this series of trying to look at things that are in in our hearts or in our world that maybe Jesus would flip. And so the series is called Some Disassembly Required. And then we're looking for things, whether they're in our church or in our, in our hearts or in our way of thinking or just in our community, we're looking for things that are just big obstacles that are keeping people from seeing what Jesus is really, truly like. Because it, everybody has an opinion about Jesus. I, I've never met someone to be like, oh, Jesus, tell me, tell me about that. I have no idea who you're talking about. Everybody thinks they know something something about Jesus. Uh, most of your community, most of your friends, either they're in church and they, they kind of see this Jesus of hope and peace, or if they're outside of church, their view of Jesus is sometimes tainted by these caricatures that, well, Jesus hates ABC, you know, whatever, fill, fill in the, the, the gaps. Uh, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. And so our goal for this series, and, and I guess, honestly, every time we teach, uh, is that let's get a real good glimpse of who Jesus is so that we, we know what we're saying yes to or for some of us, we know what we're saying no to. I fully suspect that some people, they will get a, a perfect look at the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's claiming to be, and they still say, I hear you, Jesse, I understand what you're saying, but that's a big no for me and my family. Then at least you said no to the right thing and not some made-up you know, version of Jesus that you see on the news. And so last week we were in Matthew 9. Uh, we'll be uh, kind of continuing with that story. Last week, uh, you may remember, uh, Jesus was, uh, he, he calls a tax collector and he says, Matthew, you want to be a follower of me? And Matthew's like, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to follow a rabbi. Shuts down shop, goes and throws a party and he invites all of his friends. And it turns out Jesus didn't say to the friends, hey, listen, get your act together before I come in. I'm going to stand outside here while you learn to stop cussing, stop drinking, stop partying. I'm going to stand out here while you figure that out. And once you figure out how to behave rightly, that's when I'm going to show up to the party. That's not the Jesus that we see in scripture. What we see in scripture is is Jesus who believes that you can belong before you even learn how to behave, that he redeems us, he buys us back, right? Uh, and and he, he goes and they have a party. In fact, it was so scandalous that some of the people walking by, you may remember this last week, some of the people walking by were like, hey, why is Jesus hanging out with those people? Doesn't he know what kind of people they are? And Jesus is like, yeah, I know what kind of people they are. I, in fact, I also know what kind of people you are. And so if you want to come take a seat right here with the sinners and tax collectors, you're welcome to the table. And they're like, no, I'm better than that. I'm a good person. And Jesus is like, wink, wink, maybe you need a doctor better than, than you know. Um, if that is interesting to you and, and foreign to you, like, I don't remember hearing that. Yeah, just go listen to it last week. This week is a different message. I, I'm, I'm, I'm still caught up on, on that. We're, we're going to kind of continue the story where uh, after 
after, after Jesus has this meal, some people come and ask Jesus some questions. And you can kind of hear in their questions, they're a little bit better than the Pharisees, but they're still a little hurt. I wonder if you've ever had a moment in, in kind of your walk with the Lord, or even just take it outside of it, in, in your family, where your brother got something that you didn't get, your sister got a little extra something that, that you didn't get. Have you ever been in that moment where you ask somebody like, hey, what gives? Why are they getting blank, 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 blank? And, and, in the, and kind of buried in the question is like, don't you know that like love in our family is a zero-sum game and that for love to go this way, it, it can't be here? Uh, have you ever been in, in a, a, a setting at work and you're talking to another Christian and the way that they do church is very different than the way that you do church. They have a lot of standing and sitting and there's a big organ and uh, maybe, maybe a question comes up is like, oh, well, who's worshiping Jesus rightly? Who's, which, which one of these two faiths has it, has it figured out? So, so often in our world, we, we have our experience, whether it be in family or in church or religious things, and then we see somebody else's experience, and what do we do? We, we compare and contrast, and we try to figure out, well, which one of these is right? And I think what we're going to find out is that Jesus isn't a big fan of that game, and what we're going to find out is that Jesus is big enough to be real to both groups of people that have very different views of how to express their worship of him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's continue uh, in verse 14. Uh, for those of you who, who were here last week, this immediately follows the story of last week. So the series doesn't necessarily, I'm not intending to always stay in the same book, but like I told you last week, I separated one message into three. So this is just right there in that same bit. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I like this question, the disciples of John. So uh, if, if you may remember this, we covered John the Baptist a few months ago, but just as a refresher is that John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin, and he's kind of, his ministry kicks off before Jesus's ministry. And John the Baptist is baptizing people into repentance. So he had a big platform with a lot of followers. And one of his disciples is watching how Jesus's disciples behave. And he wants to ask the question, wait a second. John the Baptist is telling us that we're supposed to be fasting over here. And the Pharisees over there, they're telling us that we're supposed to be fasting. Your disciples are having feasts. They're going to the tax collector's house. They're having parties. Why is it that when we're worshiping God, we worship this way? And when the Pharisees tell us to worship God, it's kind of looking the same as what we're doing. But the way that your worship looks is completely different. They have, I don't know if it's hurt in their voice, maybe, maybe curiosity is there. Before we unpack the question, let's have a quick word about, about fasting. That's kind of a, it's a foreign concept unless you're like a weightlifter or like really serious about exercise. Because really, like in our culture, uh, fasting isn't the most popular thing, but it's not terribly foreign. Uh, you may have heard of like intermittent fasting and that's where like, hey, I've got to lose 15 pounds. So I'm going to go like 12 hours without eating or something. And somehow it makes your muscles bigger. I don't understand the science of that because listen, I on a regular basis forget to eat lunch. It's not fasting. I just have a bad memory and I don't realize why I have a headache later, but I'm not losing weight over this. I intermittent fast by accident all the time. Uh, so I, I don't know. I would, somebody can tell me the science of intermittent fasting. Uh, if you have uh, friends, family, we're in a time of 
year that they may be fasting. Uh, we're, we're in a time of year that we call Lent, and very often Lent uh, involves, amongst other things, uh, choosing to not eat meat, like say on Fridays and things. And so, uh, especially if you have like Catholic or Lutheran friends, uh, that's something maybe many of you are practicing as well. It's not it's not like people in Carpenter's Way wouldn't, uh, but we don't we don't usually teach on fasting. And so it's like, well, what what is that? Fasting, we're going to define fasting this way. Fasting, biblically, fasting is always about food. It's to voluntarily go without food for a specific time and a specific purpose. Okay, I'm going to repeat that because it's going to matter here in a moment. That fasting is to voluntarily. So one of the things is I'm not fasting when I forget to eat. I'm not volunteering. You know, it's like I, I'm not fasting whenever I'm so in grief that I'm not eating. Uh, I've lost a loved one and so I don't eat for a few days. That's not fasting. That's grief. That's a different thing. It's voluntarily. Uh, fasting is to voluntarily go without food for a specific time and a specific purpose. And so what we see with fasting in, in the Bible is that you're choosing like a, a period of time. I'm going to go without food for a specific period of time. I'm, I'm, I mark it on the calendar. I kind of, it's not because I'm out of money. It's not because like I don't have, I can't make a sandwich. So I'm, I'm fasting now. I'm, I'm choosing to fast for a specific period of time. I'm going to fast for these seven days and then I'm going to stop. And I'm going to fast for a specific purpose. Now this is fascinating. This is, this is probably the thing that's the most foreign to, to most of us in America. America, is that they would fast to try to overcome things that they didn't have the power to overcome themselves. I think of, I think of parents who, you know, they're really wanting their child to come to the Lord, or maybe, maybe they're parents of an adult child that, like, we raise them right, and I have no power to bring them to church, but I really wish the Lord would do a thing. I have no power to do it. Someone might fast for a specific period of time for the purpose that the Lord would do a big, powerful work in somebody else's life. So they would fast for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And then, you know, in America, other fasts have kind of come up that they're not super much about food, but uh, real big right now is digital fasting, which is funny to me. Like, it's always about food, and you need food to eat, and people are like, well, I need my cell phone to live, too, and so I'm going to go on a digital tech fast. And uh, if, you, if you talk to anybody in Silicon Valley right now, the people who are actually making Twitter and Facebook and your phones and all the things, they're recommending this, that you go a weekend or a week where you just have a dumb phone for a while. You just put it away, and you don't let that a little dopamine hit every now and then, and it's amazing, they will say. It's amazing how it detoxifies your mind. Oh, maybe the Lord was on to something when he talked about fasting, you know, several thousand years ago. Fasting. Um, and there's, I, there's probably a thousand different ways that we see fasting in our culture. And so the disciples of John the Baptist, what's happened here is that they come to Jesus and they say, we fast, the Pharisees fast, and you don't fast. What gives? Now, I bet they're a little hangry about it at this moment. Like, I could use a Snickers, Jesus. I need, I need to know why. So if fasting is for a specific period of time, that, that makes sense. There's periods of time where they're hungry. What is their purpose, though? So, so one of the things that I tend to kind of breeze by as I'm flowing through this is like, you know, you don't just fast just because like, hey, it's time to go without food. You, you fast because you're trying to get a breakthrough in something. You're fasting because you need God to move in a big way, to, make, to cause mountains to move. I don't have the power to do it, so I'm just going to fast, and I'm going to trust God to do his thing. What, what is the purpose of John the Baptist in asking his people to fast? What is the purpose of the Pharisees asking them to fast? Here's, here's something that um, we'll get to. Uh, they're actually fasting for basically the same thing, which is hilarious because they don't get along. 
Okay? John the Baptist and the Pharisees, anytime they show up in Scripture together, they exchange words. And they're really colorful words. John the Baptist will look at like the high priest and it's like, you're nothing but a den of vipers. Uh, at one point, uh, someone calls them whitewashed tombs. Here's like the sparkliest, cleanest boxes of dead stuff I've ever seen. That, that's, how, that's how they would argue. We get a little bit more snarky now, but that's pretty colorful language at the time. If you ask John the Baptist uh, and his people, and you ask the Pharisees, and their people, they, they, don't, they don't really see eye to eye, but if you ask them why they're fasting, they're both fasting for the same thing. They want God to bring Messiah. They look around, they look around and they see that the world is broken. They see that it hurts. They see that people are far from God and they see that people are floundering in every which way, but they remember that God had promised all in the Old Testament that Messiah, someone will come that is sent from God, that is going to rescue all of us. They're both hoping that God would hurry up with that plan and get Messiah on the board. But if you talk to them, they're at odds with each other. Here, here's just a, a fact of most of the conflicts that you have. Most of the people that you argue with at work, most of the arguments you have with your spouse, most of, most of the arguments that you're having with other people where you're not seeing on the same page, if you take just one half of a step back and you just ask a couple of follow-up questions, you may actually find that there is a ton of common ground between you and these people that you're just like, you're just a box of dead stuff, a really sparkly clean box, but I can't stand you, okay? Um, they wanted the same thing. They wanted God to bring Messiah. And if they, I don't, I don't know, maybe if they just had a conversation, they would, they would know. What we see is they're starting to compare these disciples. They're starting to compare their experience and their religious experience with these other people. And I just want to, I want to make a statement about comparison is that my experience has been comparison is always a poison. When we let our perspective of what somebody else is going through start to be the way that we measure our own experiences, you are beginning to poison your soul and you're beginning to rot in a, in a, in a very specific way. If, if they let this go unchecked, if they, if they don't go ask Jesus this question, to, to the disciples' credit, they go and ask Jesus the question. That's good. But if they just like, oh, Jesus' disciples are getting away with a lot more stuff than we have. We have to go over here. We're going to eat. And so they start to, they start to compare their religious experience, their type of worship with this other one. I wonder, I wonder in what ways you and I let comparison become a poison in our lives. Do you, do you find yourself comparing? Um, this is me. Uh, I, I'll be, you know, my, my youngest is, he's playing baseball, like little league baseball and, and he's, he's five. And I don't know if you've ever played baseball with a five-year-old, but you know, like they're not always keyed in on the game, right? And so like, they're like, there's a baseball, there's a bird, there's a baseball, there's my friend, there's a baseball. It's like, there's a, there's a flower. I don't know, just random stuff. There's my nose. And then, and so, so there's all kinds of stuff in the five-year-old baseball field. And I know myself, like when, when I'm out on the field and I, I'm talking to either my son or one of the other players, I'm quick to compare like the actions and behaviors here of this parent with my own actions and behaviors. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you had to discipline your kids a little bit more because the other parents around you were disciplining their kids? And we were quick to compare our walk with people. Uh, but if you go talk to an educator, if you go talk to someone who's especially in special education, they're going to tell you that every child has very specific needs, and you would be a fool to try to parent your child with your child's specific needs with what that child over there needs. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to bankrupt yourself. Because as parents, if you're like me, I tend to have this tendency to compare my parenting style with this other parenting style. 
Uh, I wonder. I wonder how many times people compare, um, uh, like, like someone's someone's ability to show up. It, it really seems like they're here a lot more than I am, I, uh, or I'm here more than them. I compare like my attendance at church with their attendance at church. I compare, uh, you know, the how much how much I show up in someone's life with how much they don't show up in someone's life, or or vice versa. And never, never is that not going to be a poison. Because if that's your motivation, if comparison is your motivation for action, it's going to it's going to it's going to rot you out. All comparison is a poison. And so you have these disciples. They come to Jesus, and they say, "Hey, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast?" And again, I've already said this, but I love that they went to Jesus with it because this is basically the same problem that the Pharisees had just the paragraph before when they went to the disciples and says, why does your teacher sit with the sinners and tax collectors? Except the difference is, is that these disciples are going to Jesus and asking the question, and the other ones just talked about Jesus behind his back. It's better to go to someone and ask a question. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus, he, he kind of, instead of just giving the answer, he asks a question. He says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Super cryptic, very Jesus-y kind of way to talk. One of the helpful things that Jesus does is that he doesn't engage in the comparison game. He highlights the fact that there are, there are different ways of expressing it. Their experience of me is different than your experience of me. John the Baptist, he's out there praying and hoping that Messiah will come. These guys are hanging out with Messiah. The way that we're going to worship is going to look very, very different. By asking questions... Jesus brings into this conversation something that we would be wise to bring into our conversations. Jesus brings nuance into his conversations. He brings, he brings, like, let's, let's look at all of the ingredients, not just your own experience versus this other person's experience. In, in our world, um, we live in a world of such certitude, such certainty, that there is no nuance in how you conversate online, uh, political conversations. There's no nuance there. It's all statement, 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 no question mark, no question mark anywhere. When we go to work and we're mad at our coworker and we talk to the boss about it, we're going to bring our problems to the boss. Do we go with the questions or do we go with statements? And very often statements bring, bring more comparison, more poison. But if you can ask a question, if you can, if you can be curious at all, very often what you'll find is if you just take one step out of your experience, you get a little nuance, you're going to find that there's a little bit of common ground. Oh, I see your side a little bit. In fact, if I was living in the same situation that you were living, maybe I would have behaved in the same way. But now that I understand your side, let me, let me explain, like, here's my experience and here's how I have found these things to go. Let me, let me give you a little tip. Uh, uh, families, create more nuance in your conversation, especially if you find that you're arguing a lot with your spouse. Sometimes, sometimes it's good to just pause and ask a follow-up question. Maybe, maybe you need a question like, hey, can you, can you please tell me a little bit more about blank? Okay, can you tell me a little bit more about your feelings on, on raising a child? Can you tell me a little bit more about like why uh, why your teacher did did this instead of that? And so instead of just we react with a statement, we ask a follow up question. Maybe maybe the question that you may ask is something like this: I I can see that that is really important to you. Can you help me understand why that's so important? And then you just sit back and you listen. And when you listen, you're gonna you're gonna create a little bit of of nuance and not not step into just all kind of 
hot water. I think, I think what we're going to find is that if we, if we begin to interact with people this way, um, we're going, we're going to get out of our own way. The, you know, some disassembly required. Maybe something that needs to be disassembled in ourselves is the sense that we must be right or else people are going to look down on us. I don't know if this is true of you. I respect people that, that they don't know the answer and they're quick to say, I don't know, but I'm curious. I want to know. I respect it a lot more than someone who just bulldozes through a conversation just bulldozes to the finish line right away. It's usually better to just sit and listen and ask questions. I'm, I'm finding this true of myself because, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I speak publicly. This isn't a conversation, right? Uh, I, I wish it was. It, actually, I say that. I, actually, I went to a church when we were in college. Like they, they tried that out where like if you had a question in the middle of the service, like you would just raise your hand and you would stand up, you would talk for a while. That was really weird, okay? Just to be honest with you. Uh, there, there is a need for sometimes monologue moments, but here's the problem. I'm trained in giving monologues. I work on these for, for hours, right? But if I bring monologue Jesse into conversations with coworkers or with my spouse, oh my gosh, could you imagine the amount of marriage counseling, Ashley, I would need if all I did was just walk into the house and just have one-way conversations? All of you would be like, no, that's, that's nonsense. That's not how the, the world works. But it kind of is. It kind of is. It has been my experience, at least in the last year or two, that everybody is so sure of their own rightness that they won't even consider one other person's perspective. And what Jesus does is like he paints this picture like there's other perspectives here. He uses the imagery of a, of a wedding. And he's like, you know, when, when you're hanging out with the bridegroom, imagine you're at a wedding, right? And the bridal party is there and you're just like down in the dumps. Like you're just, you're just slumming. Like you're in the corner. Everybody's cheering the bride. She's crying. They're dancing. They're having their first dance as a couple. And you're just over there like the world's coming to an end. I don't, they're going to ask you to leave. Okay. They don't want you at the party. You're really bringing down the whole vibe of the moment in there because, because you're with the, you're with the source of joy. But let's say the bridegroom and everybody leaves. They're like, Hey guys, I only rented this place for 10 more minutes, so you've got to go. We're, we're leaving. The party's over. You can't hang out and keep celebrating. You're going to be arrested. You understand? Like there, There's a sequence and a season for things. And the season that Jesus' disciples were in is that they were with the source of joy. They were with Messiah. And the season that the Pharisees were in is that they hadn't quite figured out who Messiah is, and they can't walk into that joy. I wonder... If our expression of worship is different than another person's expression of worship, not because one's right and one's wrong, I wonder if maybe the way that God is interacting with us is very genuine and very authentic. And listen, the way he's interacting with that church over there is very genuine and very authentic. Could it be that what people need in that place of worship is different than what we need in our place of worship? And that's why things look different. You say, well, Jesse, why don't you teach people to raise your hands? I don't personally need that. Some people, they need to physically be involved in worship so that they can be a part of that. And there are churches that will teach that. I, I'm not convinced that all the different things have to have a hard yes or a no, but that, just like Jesus, we can have some nuance. Maybe you can have some nuance in your marriage. Maybe you have some nuance with your boss, your coworkers. Maybe, maybe we can begin to be more curious people and ask questions. So Jesus asks this question, Hey, you know, when you're at the, when you're at the wedding, if the bridegroom is there, are you in the slumps? Of course not. You're not. And then he goes on and he starts to unpack this. This is where things get really good, guys. He says in verse 16, no one, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment 
or uh, and, uh, a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. He, he paints these two pictures. He says, imagine you, I, I don't, any seamstresses in here? I don't know how to sew. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if this is true. I just take Jesus at his word. It turns out if you take like an old pair of pants that have a hole in it, and you put a new piece of cloth on top of that hole, and you sew it in, it fits just right. And when you wash it, what's going to happen? The new cloth is going to shrink. And Jesus' point is like, it's going to rip. It's going to make a worse hole than what you started with. Uh, can anybody verify that that's true? It just seems likely to me. Is that, is that how clothing works? Yeah, a few of you. Thank you. Are you a seamstress? I had no idea, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I, need, I need a suit tailored later. But it, se- it seems likely to me that this is how things work. Um, we were, uh, there's, there used to be a, a winery that just started in Beaumont, and they had uh, all the wine was fermenting in big clear barrels, which was kind of cool to watch. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever seen wine ferment? It actually bubbles. Like it has like a boiling effect. It almost looks... Um, so like carbonated, it looks carbonated. Uh, and part of the fermentation process is that it swells, like it's, it's producing gases. And so these big clear barrels that they had, had little vents that someone was trained. His job, his job was to go up to the barrel vent and be like, and just like let the pressure out every now and then. Because if not, this whole acrylic barrel is just going to explode and wine's going to go everywhere. Because they know that it requires a little bit of expansion. There's a little bit of growth. And so in both of these metaphors, Jesus is saying, you've got to be careful because if we start to try to put the new things onto the old things and just force it to happen, it's going to cause more damage than if we just wait and let, let us fix the container first. You can't put a new patch on old cloth and you can't put new wine in an old container. You, you know what he's telling these disciples is, I'm not going to force you to start celebrating in this way. I'm going to wait for you to to, to get the wine skin right. I'm going to wait for you to get the cloth right. What, what if Jesus told those disciples, like, oh yeah, you guys don't have to fast. You, you don't, you know, no, you, here, you just do whatever you want. You come, you come right, right away over here. You come worship this way. They don't have the, 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 the pattern of thinking down right. They have an old way of thinking. Let, let me say this another way. It turns out what Jesus is really interested in is not repackaging the old ways of worshiping God. What if, what if this, what if, what if the reason you're in a spiritual plateau right now, like I'm, I'm not, I'm talking to Christians for a second. I'm not talking to unbelievers. What if the reason you, for the last five years, you can't remember the last like step forward in following Jesus. It's, it's not because you need him to pour new wine in you. It might be that the Lord is asking you to assess something in yourself. What, what if, what if it is one of the kindest, most gentle things that the Lord is doing to not give you that new outpouring, that new, that new understanding of how to be, that new freedom? Because He wants you to address this thing, this old thing that you're hanging on to, and that if pouring the new into the old is going to cause you more pain and more destruction, I, I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that one of the walks of of any Christian is to at times just like come to grips with old things in themselves that need to be released. You know, we, we, we have so many people, especially in the, in the South where we're at, we're like in the Bible Belt. We're, we're in the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, big old Texas belt buckle. Come on, guys, you know? Like, there's not a person in our community that hasn't heard the name Jesus. And most people, most of the people that we know, even, even people who are like, I'm an atheist today, but they, most people will tell you, like, I went to VBS when I was in second grade, and I received the Lord, and that was my faith. And now, they're like in their 30s and their 40s, and what they're thinking, this may be true of somebody in here, I don't know. 
And they're thinking, I just don't believe in a God who interacts with me in this way. That's so childlike. You know what I would say to you? I'll say, of course it's childlike. You were a child when he interacted with you then. How foolish would Jesse be if the faith that I have right now mirrors exactly what I was like in fifth grade? It would be inadequate for being married and being a father and being a leader. It's inadequate, but it is adequate for that fifth grade Jesse who just needed that version of Jesus. I think, I think too many Christians get small tastes of Jesus, big transformation at an early age, and then they're just satisfied with the old wineskin. Not accepting the fact that Jesus is alive and today willing to do new works in your life today. I believe that the Lord is willing to do a new work in your parenting, in your marriage, in how you interact with your boss. I believe that the Lord is willing to do amazing new works. And he might be, instead of just trying to pour good, good things into you, he might be trying to address the old things so that it's ready, so that you're ready, and that your heart doesn't explode or the tear is worse than it was before. What if, what if what we need to flip and get out of the way is our old ways of thinking? Okay, so, so um, I'm getting all excited. I'm sweating now. Um, I'm going to get a towel and start dabbing. This whole series is disassembly. The idea of just flipping tables. Like, what, what is the big obstacle in the way right here? I think, I think sometimes it's hard to see God um, because we jump to conclusions too quickly in our conversations. We think that someone's trying to, to hurt us when the Lord is using them to help us. We think that by them talking to us about that thing, they're judging us, and maybe the Lord is convicting us. Maybe How many times have you felt judged by someone and they had no idea what they were talking about because the Lord was just kind of speaking through them in, the, in that moment? Too often, we, we just jump to conclusions about what God is going to do or how he's going to act or how people interact. And what we need to do is just pause, maybe take a breath, ask a follow-up questions, get super curious, and just get some nuance. Sometimes it's harder to see God because we just jump to conclusions too quick, and we need to slow down. Sometimes it's hard to see God because of this poison of comparison is rotting our soul. We, we look at how other people's walk with Jesus is, and instead of, instead of just cultivating ours, we're just kind of jealous or... Or, or vice versa. We're so proud of ourselves. Like, I'm so much better than, oh, so I don't sin like so-and-so. Well, the Lord is trying to tell you to work on something else, but just because his or her sins are so easy to see doesn't mean that you have nothing that needs to be worked on. Billy Graham uh, talks about this. I don't know why this just popped in my head. Someone asked Billy Graham. He's like, he's like 85 years old, and he's like, hey, at what age do I stop struggling with like lusting, Billy Graham? And Billy Graham's like, I don't know. I'll let you know when I get there. You know, like everybody is working on something. You're going to be a work in progress for the rest of your life. And when we compare ourselves in the better to somebody else, uh, we're stunting what the Lord is doing us. We're telling the Lord, I'm satisfied with my old wineskin. And the Lord might be just holding back that wine. He's like, you're not ready for it yet until you stop comparing yourself. Your walk with your Lord is personal. And we can't adopt the walk of our grandparents any more than can we suppose or superimpose our walk onto somebody else. It is an individual thing. Best you can do is hope and pray for your brother or your sister, but you can't force them to do anything. So sometimes God's hard to see because we jump to conclusions. Sometimes God is hard to see because of this poison of comparison. And sometimes God is hard to see because we're holding onto the old way, way too tightly. 
What, what, if, what if the Lord is wanting to go in a completely different direction in Carpenter's Way than anybody in this room, including me, has thought of yet? Are we okay with that? And I think some of us are like, yeah, we're supposed to be okay with that, right? But really, are we okay with that? One of the prayers that we have is uh, we'll, we'll finish elder meetings or we'll finish staff meetings. We're kind of it'll be like a big planning session. One of the prayers that we repeat a lot is that Lord, we we work really hard on these plans, but we're willing to hold it with a loose grip. And if you want to change anything, we're down. Like you can change anything you want in these plans. So uh, we worked hard. We hope that they're holy. But if you want to do something new, that's that's great. Would you be comfortable enough doing that with your own life? Well, Jesse, I, I, I planned this. I went to college for this. I worked really hard for this. I, I'm going to have two and a half kids, which is funny. You know, anyway, uh, the average, uh, you get it. Uh, I, jokes don't always need explanation, Jesse. Uh, I've made all of my plans, and now I feel like the Lord is calling me in this other direction. He's blessed all of this, but this is like a hard right turn. That's because the Lord is alive, and he's well, and he's still leading people. To, to call him Lord is to say, I'm going to follow you, Right? You may have noticed, I don't very much call people Christians. I call them followers of Jesus because I think the word Christian has all this baggage attached to it. I, I like this picture of being a follower. I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus is going this way. Year one, year two, year three, year five. And Jesus says, hey, I'm, now I'm going this way. Uh, but Jesus, I thought we were going this way. I'm stunted in that moment. The best growth, the best move any of us can make is to be very sensitive to what the Lord is calling us to do and to stop holding on to the old and turn towards it. And so here's what I want to do. I want to close with this, with this thought. Maybe we can meditate on this this week. We, we, are, we are better when we turn to the Lord with an abundance of curiosity. Where are you leading me? What do you want? How do you want me to treat this person? How can I handle this situation? Lord, I don't know what to do. We should ask questions about the good and the bad we experience, the easy and the hard parts of our life. When something good happens to you, like ask the Lord, like what, what is this blessing for? Like how am I supposed to treasure this? How am I supposed to protect this? How am I supposed to honor you with this blessing? And listen, Christian, I just said I never do that. And there I go, I did it. Uh, what am I supposed to do with this tragedy in my life? We're all just one phone call away from our life going sideways. What if, what if that tragedy is also something you bring to the Lord and be like, this stinks. What am I supposed to do with it? Help me and go to the Lord with curiosity. A habit of curiously exploring life with God puts us in the best position to move into the new, quote, that he is calling us to. If we're going to go into this new wine, if we're going to stop being old wineskins, we're going to have to have some curiosity and we have to be willing to let go of some things. Uh, I want to read a quote. It's a, if you'll forgive me, it's a bit of a long quote. It's a, from a guy named Oswald Chambers. Uh, and he wrote a devotional. In fact, I found out as I was getting ready for this quote, it's a quote that I think about often. The very last line of it is something I think about often. And as I, as I looked it up, it turns out like this whole devotional is online for free. And so if you would like to read this, if you want this as part of your devotional, you can go to utmost.org. It's a, a book called um, My Utmost for His Highest. Here's, here's what Oswald Chambers says. One of the greatest hindrances in coming to Jesus is the excuse of temperament. We make our temperament and our natural affinities barriers to coming to Jesus. The first thing we realize when we come to Jesus is that he pays no attention whatever to our natural affinities. We have the notion that we can consecrate our gifts to God. You cannot consecrate what is not yours. There is only one thing you can consecrate to God, and that is your right to yourself. And then he quotes Romans 12, 1. 
Keep going. He says, if you will give God your right to yourself, he will make a holy experiment out of you. God's experiments always succeed. The one mark of a saint is the moral originality which springs from abandonment to Jesus Christ. In the life of a saint, there is this amazing wellspring of original life all the time. The Spirit of God is a well of water springing up perennially fresh. The saint realizes that it is God who engineers circumstances. Consequently, there is no wine with an H, but a reckless abandon to Jesus. I never knew those opening lines, but here's the quote that I always think about. Never make a principle out of your experience. Let God be as original with other people as he is with you. We all go through things. We all have circumstances. We all have moments. And then we take our experience and we say, this is how God is and this is how he interacts. And then we try to either superimpose it onto our future or we try to superimpose it on other people. And it's just your experience. Don't make a principle out of your own experiences, but let God be as original with other people as he is with you. And listen, listen, let God be original with you too. Don't compare your walk with the Lord with somebody else and their version of obedience must look exactly the same as your version of obedience. In some things, they will be the same, but in most of your life, the parts of your life that are beautiful and creative, they will be very unique to you. And don't rob yourself of that original God who is willing to lead you into the new. Let me pray for you, and we'll watch uh, the queue together. Lord, Lord, we come to you, um, and we thank you, Father, that you're not just a, a philosophical concept that we're trying to prove to ourselves, but you're alive and well. Um, you're a king, you're a lord, you're a leader. Father, we want to follow you into every expression of what that is. We want to find the, the abundant life that you're leading us towards. Lord, your, your word teaches us that, that you're going to lead us to waters. You're going to cause us to lie down in green pastures. You know the way better than us. Father, help us to, to just take one step forward into the new that you're calling us into. To not hang on to the old. To not force perceptions onto other people. And to be very comfortable with you being original with others as you are with us. And Lord, we want to have a vibrant life with you. And it's going to come in our willingness to let go of the old. Help us to do so. Give us the courage to get our old ways of thinking out of the way of what you're calling us to do. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.